Well, happy Easter. I, uh, I love Easter, and one of the reasons I love Easter is I get to see, like, all of you on the same day. It's awesome. It's kind of like everybody who calls Rio their church and they're in town, okay, comes on Easter, and I get to meet your friends because you invite your friends, and they come with you. And, and then I get to meet people, you know, who are maybe your family members that I've gotten to know some of you over the years, and so it's kind of exciting to get reacquainted with you. And then there's been a whole host of you who join us today because yesterday you realized it was Easter, and you were driving by, and you thought this would be a convenient place to come to church until you tried to park. <laughs> and the joke's on you, right? But thank you. Thank you for persevering, and we're thankful to have you and pray that God will bless you for being here. But it is a little bit challenging for me this Easter as the communicator, and I say that because we as a church have spent like the whole year trying to get everybody onto the same bus so that we can then get everybody to go on the same journey, and we're going to continue that today, but here's the deal. If you're just showing up, you didn't know anything about a bus or a journey, so I want to tell you what we've been doing. Just going to pull the bus over, open the door and let you in. We have spent this year developing a great big transformational idea, which is simply that life for the believer in Jesus is mission. And we've defined the terms. We've said by life, we mean every moment of our lives, not just, you know, some little bit of time that we carve out every once in a while, maybe on a Sunday morning, but like all the time. And by life, we mean also every category of our lives. The way I do marriage is mission, and parenting is mission, and business is mission, and every aspect of my life is mission. So the whole of me, mission, and it's not my mission or your mission, it's His mission. And what is His mission? His mission is by the power of His Spirit through His people to sacrificially take His mercies to the needy people in this world and to take the message of a risen Jesus to the needy people of this world. The message is of a risen Jesus. It is a fundamentally, constitutionally, undeniably Easter message. So life is mission, and the way we've been developing that as a church is we've been studying through this book called the Book of Acts. It's written by Luke. It gives us a picture of the church pastored by the apostles who, by the way, saw the risen Jesus, like they went to the empty tomb and it was actually empty. They then hung out with Jesus for 40 days. They gave Jesus a bro hug. They put their fingers into the nail holes. They put their hand into the side of where the spear went, went in. They, they hung out. They talked with him. They ate with him. They conversed with him. And they apparently became really convinced that he was actually not a ghost, not an apparition, not a hallucination, but really alive. Because almost every one of those guys died torturous deaths. Proclaiming a risen Jesus and proclaiming it to who? Because that's been interesting too. Proclaiming it not just to their family, not just to their friends, not just to the people they work with, not just the people they go to school with, not just to the people in their neighborhood, not to the people in their Jewish city, not just to their Jewish kindred. That's a big deal for first century Jewish people. But even beyond, as we saw last week, and as we'll see again today, They took the message of the risen Jesus to the whole of their then-known world, to every kind and classification of person. And here's why, and it's the bottom line, because this Easter message of a risen Jesus, guys, is for everyone, no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, this message, this message is for you. And I honestly can't think of a better story to illustrate that point 
than the one that we're going to look at as we pick up our study again today in Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 26. And this is a story, by the way, that if you were here with us last week, you know begins in the midst of a great revival. Last week we got together and we saw there was a great revival that's happening in Samaria and it's being led by a great man and his name is Philip. Philip is the evangelist. Philip is the lightning rod. Philip is the catalyst. The Spirit of God has come upon this Philip and he's doing signs and wonders and miracles and he's preaching and everybody's paying attention. Like, that's almost a miracle. It's awesome. City after city, village after village, hundreds if not thousands of people coming to faith in Christ. Imagine a big wave cresting in Samaria of revival. And now understand that Luke then says this. He says, now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and what? Go. Now, pause for a minute. What is he saying? Stop preaching in Samaria. No, 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 no. I know that it's cresting. No, 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 really go. No, leave. I'm going to interrupt the whole thing. I want you to stop the revival. Seriously. God says, I'm sending you somewhere else. I know what's going on here. You're going to go somewhere else. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And then Luke adds this curious little detail that's actually really important. He says, this place that I am sending you to, where you will meet and bring this Easter message of a risen Jesus to exactly one guy, not hundreds, not thousands, not a whole other big wave that's going to crest, but now in a different look, just one guy. That place that I'm sending you to where you'll meet him? is a desert place. The word actually means desolate. It's dry. It's dead. It's brown. It's like my yard. Okay? Picture that. And what does Philip do? He says, God, I think that's a terrible idea. I, uh, I can't believe that you're going to do that. And no. No, he believes that God is wiser than he is. It's interesting, God calls us to do things that make no sense to us. And I think as we'll learn here, God sees way beyond what we see. So Philip rose and went. If you're really following the story at this point, you're kind of thinking it through with me. You know, you're sort of at least metaphorically moving up to the edge of your seat because you're thinking to yourself, my goodness, you know, if God's going to interrupt this cresting wave of evangelism, if you will, in Samaria to pull Philip out of there, to send him out into the dry, dead, desolate, really brown like Tom's yard place to meet one guy so that he can preach to one guy about this risen Jesus, that one guy must be a really special man. And I want to stop and say that is a very special man indeed. I revere this man. The church for thousands of years have revered this man. You should revere this man. But we're not going to look at him today from our perspective. We're going to look at him from a different perspective. We're going to look at him from the perspective of the place that he's coming from when Philip meets him in the desolate, dry, brown desert. He's coming from the temple in Jerusalem. And we need to put those goggles on if we're going to understand this man and this story If we're going to come to realize that what Luke is doing here is he's giving us a picture of the last kind of guy according to that temple that it would seem at least that God would ever be available to. To make the point of what? Well, that the risen Jesus, guys, he's available to everyone. And so Luke begins to describe him. 
And he tells us that he was an Ethiopian. Okay, we're going to be uncomfortable for 10 seconds until you realize that you too are the Ethiopian. The word Ethiopian means black of face. All right? Now, as 21st century Americans, thankfully that doesn't mean a lot to us. But at the temple in Jerusalem, that marks him as a clear foreigner. See, like it or not, believe it or not, fair or unfair, the temple in Jerusalem, Jerusalem itself was known and famous everywhere outside of the Jewish ethnicity for being racist. It's a fact. And not just against Ethiopians, against anyone who wasn't a Jew. Now, I guess if I would ask you to raise your hand and I won't, that would be pretty much all of us. So I want you to identify with our Ethiopian friend. But here's the difference between me, for example, and my Ethiopian friend. If I I put on the right costume, if I learned how to speak the language, if I kind of came to know the culture, if I grew a beard, I could probably move around in Jerusalem and move around in the temple of Jerusalem without drawing too much attention. Why? Because I have brown hair and brown eyes and lightly complected skin. And my Ethiopian brother can't do that. He's a clear foreigner, and as a clear foreigner, he is rejected by the temple of Jerusalem, which is the place, guys, where the forgiveness of the sins that stand between him and God, at least he thinks, are made. And not only is he a clear foreigner, but he's a eunuch. And that's significant, too. You know, way back in the ancient days, royal families would look for, and they they would take the most gifted, the most capable, the most intelligent, the most educable, the most virtuous of the sons of their slaves, and while they were boys, and I'm sure you didn't come here thinking you'd get to hear this word, they would emasculate them. They would neuter them like you would your dog, to put it very, very plainly. And then they would train them to be in charge of their harems, and they would train them to be in charge of their money. Now, why in charge of the harems? Well, if you're going to put them in charge of your women, you don't want them to mess with your women. But what about the money? Why do you do that? To deny them a wife, to deny them kids, to deny them family and in-laws and all of that stuff. Because, I mean, my goodness, if you're the royal treasurer and your daughter is dying and she needs some kind of an emergency surgery and you don't have the money to pay for it, well, you might be tempted to steal, wouldn't you? Not if your reward for being a really bright young man is to be made a eunuch. This man was made a eunuch. He knows what it is to suffer, this man. This amazing, remarkable man. And you say, well, you know, how does Luke know that he's a eunuch? And I guess you could say, well, he talked to Philip, but that just pushes the question one more person. Okay, well, how did Philip know that he's a eunuch? Because it's kind of an unusual topic. I mean, it's not like you walk up and go, hey, I'm Tom, and uh, are you a eunuch? You know, that doesn't happen. How does he know? How does he know? You know how he knows? He looks at his face. It's that simple. As soon as he sees his face, he knows, and why? Because in the first century, men almost universally wore beards, and when you've been neutered as a boy, you never grow one. And you bear the indignity of your brokenness on your face. A brokenness that everyone sees, that everyone in Jerusalem saw, that everyone in that temple saw, and that also, by the way, barred this man 
from the place of sacrifice, from the place where God and man come together, from the the temple. This guy is doubly barred. And I'll I'll go one further. We know what they thought of eunuchs in those days. The eunuchs of those days were mocked mercilessly, guys. And here's what they called them. It's so nice. They called them dry trees, and here's why. They were like fruit trees that couldn't bear fruit. And a fruit tree that can't bear fruit is worthless. You feeling it with this guy? I love this guy. I think he's awesome. He was at least a wealthy dry tree. We read that next. It says that he was a court official of Candace. Now, Candace is not a name. It's not Candace the Queen. It's a title. It's like Pharaoh of Egypt, okay? So he's court official of Candace, the Queen of the Ethiopians. And by the way, they were ruled by women. So right on. Right? None of the ladies care. I can't believe it. <laughs> Half of them are secretly making plans to Ethiopia. Where? How do you... It was a matriarchy. So he's a court official of Candace, queen of Ethiopia, and he was in charge not just of some of her treasure, but of all of her treasure. And Ethiopia was famous for its gold and its gems. Very wealthy, very powerful man. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And the idea is he came to Jerusalem to worship God, and he came to worship at the temple, which practically speaking means that back in his homeland of Ethiopia, he became convinced through the Scriptures that the God of Israel was the true and the living God, and he knew enough of the Bible to know that the place where sacrificed for the sin that was keeping him from true relationship with that God that stood between him and God, well, the, the place that That sacrifice was made was the temple, and this guy was so about relationship with God and getting his sins forgiven that he got in a carriage and rode 800 miles to get there. That is a lot of chiropractic treatment. That's a big effort. It's a big effort. And when he got there, what happened? Well, he was barred from the temple that he came to for two reasons. One, he's a clear foreigner. He can't play it off. Two, he's eunuch, and it's revealed on his face. He's broken. He's incomplete. And only as well to be subjected to the racism of that city, to be mocked as a dry tree, and likely also to be taken advantage of for his great wealth. I'm sure that he rolled in with a caravan, guys. And everybody went, yeah, how can we make money on this man? Because as you'll recall, this is the temple Jesus described as a den of what? Anybody know? Of thieves. Of den of thieves. So that's our friend. That's the guy that Philip encounters in this dry, in this desolate, in this brown-like Tom's Yard place. And what's so awesome to me about this guy is he hasn't given up. He didn't go to the temple and leave saying something like, okay, God, if that's what your people are like, fine. If that's how I'm going to be treated, fine. I'm done. I'm out. I'm finished. I I, I came 800 miles to be subjected to this. I was hurt at that church, and I'm not going back. This man is still reading the Word of God, and he is searching in God's Word for some scrap of mercy that might even be available to him because he hadn't found a lot of hope in Jerusalem. 
Luke says this eunuch had come to Jerusalem to worship and he was returning. And I want you to picture this. He's seated in his chariot and so somebody else is driving and he's riding. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah and he's reading the prophet Isaiah aloud. We see that in the text, but he has to read the prophet Isaiah aloud. Why? He's reading a scroll and the parchment, the velum that the scroll would have been written on was so valuable in ancient times that they had no margins, that they put no spaces between the words and there was absolutely no punctuation. So you've got to imagine just a string of letters from side to 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 side. And the only way that you could make sense of it is to read it out loud and sound it out as you go. So that's what he's doing. When the Spirit comes to Philip and says, go over and join this chariot. And so Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you were reading? And I kind of picture this guy who's just been humiliated at the temple in Jerusalem, sort of throwing his hands up in the air and saying, you know, I don't have any idea. He says, how can I unless someone guides me? I think he thought he knew what he was reading. Pre-Jerusalem. Post-Jerusalem, he's befuddled. And so he invites Philip to come on up and sit with him. And then Luke tells us exactly where in the scroll, not the book, the scroll, this man is reading from, and it's Isaiah 53. It's this sorrowful poem in which Isaiah looks forward 750 years and graphically describes the sufferings and death of Jesus for this man's sins. And for mine, for yours. He says, now the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he, Jesus, was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he, Jesus, opens not his mouth. Why why does not he open his mouth? Okay, here's the reason. He's bearing our sin, and honestly, we're guilty. There's no defense. I mean, we like to make defenses and we like to make excuses and we like to make rationalizations and all of that kind of stuff. But here's the deal. The standard is the perfection of God himself. Yeah, okay, guilty. Like a sheep, Jesus was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearers is silent. So Jesus opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. And who can describe his generation? Meaning who can describe of his children? Who can speak of his kids? For his life... We read in this English translation, is taken away from the earth. Here's what it really says. For his life was cut off. Now, I hope you can see why the eunuch is relating to this. Because he's reading about one who, like himself, was subjected to the humiliation and to the injustice of that temple. And who, like himself, had no children as the result of, sorry for the graphics, a cutting off. So the eunuch then said to Philip, okay, about whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this? Is he talking about himself? Is he talking about someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture in Isaiah 53, very specific, he told him the good news about Jesus, the one who came and assumed all of our sin, and then in our place suffered the hostilities of that temple and offered his perfect life before the Father. A life that is infinitely valuable because he's God and man. And more than sufficient to cover over all of our sins as the sacrifice for our sins. A man whom that temple put to death and laid in a grave and a man who left behind an empty grave for how could death hold the author of life that that temple could not explain. It's awesome. 
And in doing so, what does Jesus become for us? For this eunuch. He becomes the place where, well, first, God and man come together. He is God and man. And he becomes the place where he brings God and man together. How? Through the sacrifice of his life. He becomes the place where sacrifice for sin is made. He becomes the true temple. You see how that works? Found by this man in a dry place, in a dead place, in a desolate place, in a brown place. By this man, who illustrates for us that the message is for everyone. So now notice what happens. It's so cool. It's very artistic. Verse 36, it says, and as they were going along, see, Philip has preached this message. This man has come to faith. He's believing it. He's found what he had gone all the way to the temple in Jerusalem to look for out in the desert brown place. And as they were going along, they came to some water, which means what? That they've gone from dry and desolate and dead and brown to running with water, which brings forth life. An oasis, a place of green things. It means that what's happening geographically in this story mirrors what's happening in this man's heart. He's gone from dry and dead and desolate to brown to running with living water and growing with green things. And as they were going along, they came to that water. And the eunuch who sees this said to Philip, and I wonder what his voice was like. He says, see, here is water. And then he asks a question. He doesn't say, baptize me. He says, what prevents me from being baptized? And I think a lot of people struggle with that because they look at their lives and they go, oh, my goodness, maybe it's this and maybe it's this. And, maybe, you know, like you got a list and you're flipping the page over, writing other things. Oh, and then there was, I think that would prevent me. What prevents you? For those with faith in Christ, what prevents you from coming to him? Nothing. From being baptized in him, nothing. But it's kind of like the last threshold for that guy. Is there anything that prevents me from being a part of the family of God through the forgiveness found in Jesus' answer? No. And so Philip, if you know the story, walks down with him into the water and baptizes him. And they come walking back up out of the water. And then something really cool and unexplainable happens. The Spirit takes Philip like miraculously. He's just gone, you know. So now he's gone, and the Ethiopian eunuch's there, and he's by himself. And then how does Luke close the story? It's it's profound. Verse 39, he says, And the eunuch went on his way rejoicing. All right, but how does Luke know that he went on his way rejoicing? You're like, Philip told him, no, Philip was gone. Okay, it's an assumption. No, he doesn't say, I assume, therefore, then the Philip, you know, that the eunuch must have gone. He states it as a fact. He knows this because he knows where the man was reading from the book of Isaiah. And he knows he wasn't reading a book. He was reading a scroll. See, when you read a book, you can flip around, can't you? You can turn to the chapters, go to the back, go to the index, go to the... You're reading a scroll? Wherever you set it down? Well, that's where you pick it up. He set it down at the end of Isaiah 53. He picks it up in Isaiah 54 where the prophet begins to explain the benefits of the sufferings, of the death, of the burial, and of the resurrection of Jesus. Sufferings that would have struck this man's ear profoundly, joyfully, 
So, for example, he knows that as he got back in his chariot to continue his 800-mile trip home, this guy would have picked up the scroll and he would have read this, Isaiah 54, beginning in verse 1. It says, Sing, O barren one. Sing, O barren one who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. Now, how do you think that struck the ears of a guy barren from childhood? And why should he sing? It's awesome. For the children, for the very thing that he's been denied. For the children of the, watch the language, desolate one, of the dry one. Will be more than the children of she who is married, says the Lord. And so God says, enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. He's saying, look, man, build a bigger house because you do not have enough room in your present house for all the children that I'm going to give to you. What kind of children? Are they, are they going to be physical children that this guy's going to have? No, he's a eunuch, guys. But he will have children. And Luke knows that he would read that. And rejoice, and then right after that, well, okay, he would read Isaiah 55, and he would read this. Verse 1, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Now, this guy's just been baptized in the waters. He's still dripping. Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Now, how do you think that struck the ears of this guy who was so thirsty, he traveled 800 miles by way of carriage, only to be rejected and humiliated and barred and mistreated and taken advantage of, falsely flattered for his great wealth, ripped off. See what the true temple offers. He himself has purchased. All you do is come. You don't need to bring a good life. You don't need to bring a donation. You need to bring your sin and yourself and humbly give yourself to the Savior and freely receive the milk and the wine of His mercy. So Luke knows that he would have read that and rejoiced, but then, of course, he also knows that he would have read, well, the next chapter, Isaiah 56, and this is the clincher. This is awesome. Isaiah says this, verse 1, he says, Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my deliverance will be revealed. Who is the salvation and deliverance of God? It's Christ. This man has just met him in the desert and it's created a green heart that once was brown in him. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast by faith in that heart and who then acts in worship, lives as an act of worship and thanksgiving and honors God with his life, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, keeps his hands from doing any evil, and then here it is, and I want you to hear it from his ears and yours. He says, let not the foreigner from whom it seems that God is barred, yet who has joined himself to the Lord through Jesus is the point. Let not the foreigner say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And then get this, and let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. I'm consigned to a life of worthlessness. I'm consigned to a life of meaninglessness. I'm consigned to a life of purposelessness. I'm consigned to a life that cannot possibly be fruitful in any way that actually matters. Don't say it. Not if you've joined yourself to the Lord through Christ. And what's really awesome, and this is the Paul Harvey, you know, rest of the story moment, is that this guy 
Uh, even though we don't know his name today, he's been known um, by millions of people and not simply because he's recorded for us in this story. That doesn't hurt, but that's not the reason. He is largely regarded historically as the one who founded what's called today the Coptic Church. It's a Christian community in Ethiopia and in the southern Sudan. It is the most persecuted church in the world and has been for most of the last two millennia. Its people have suffered racism. They have suffered persecution. They have suffered, if I can just say it, Islam. Its men, its women, its children have been tortured, murdered, and crucified for preaching a risen Jesus. For preaching a risen Jesus. When you belong to him, they cannot even take your life, really. They've clung to the cross, these people. Right now, there are about three million of them in Egypt alone. And here is the deal. Every one of them looks at this man and calls him, are you ready? The eunuch? Father. It's glorious. Let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. And you don't have to say it either. See, the message of the risen Jesus is for everyone. It was for him, it's for me, it's for Philip, it's for the Samaritans, it's for the Ethiopians, it's for you. It's for all of us. And this Ethiopian eunuch is an awesome example of that. And frankly, I'm kind of an example of it too. Once very far away, brought near through Jesus. See, we're examples of people for whom the risen Jesus, through the living waters of His Spirit, by His sovereign mercies, have come into hearts that were once dry and desolate and frankly brown. And by His gospel and goodness and grace, have made green things grow. How would you describe your heart today? And we're examples of people who were once sterile, maybe not of children, but of meaning. Maybe not of progeny, but of purpose. Maybe not of posterity, but of joy, of satisfaction in life that Christ has claimed. And as He teaches us to learn to live our lives as mission, has and is infusing meaning and purpose and deep-seated joy of knowing that forever, notwithstanding what we may face, in our Savior, we win. It really is in the end. Okay. So the message of the risen Jesus, guys, is for everyone. I think that's the heart of the story. And the point of the story is that everyone includes you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank, we're so thankful that we gather not to study about a teacher. Not to merely come to hear the words of a prophet. We gather today by the Spirit of God, in the presence of God, to worship God Himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who is a man for men came into this world to do what men have not done. 
lived righteously, lived generously, lived justly, worshiped you, Lord. And he did it for us. And then though he was blameless, he took upon himself all of our blame, all of our guilt, all of our sin, all of our shame, and washed it away with his perfect blood, suffering death, and then rising from the dead to proclaim this message, even God to us. Bring us, Lord, to your empty tomb this day. Convict us, God, for who you are and who we are, and let us, like this eunuch, find living water in the desert. Make the brown things turn green, Lord, and make us fruitful. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Happy Easter.